Okay, let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for uh, this place that we have that we can stay dry, that we can safely come to church to worship you, and that we can even worship you in the comforts of our home and the safety of our homes. That, Lord, we thank you that it is not location that brings us together necessarily, but, Lord, it's your Holy Spirit that brings us together. And it's your Holy Spirit that speaks to us, that edifies us, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that it would be you who speaks to our hearts and our minds and into our life. And we give you this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're like me, maybe you've asked this question in your life. If you can go back in time and change a decision you made, would you do it? You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have asked yourself that question? If I could only go back in time and change my decision that I made, would you do it? Now, maybe you have a a, a particular moment in your mind that you would say, if I can go back to that moment, I would make a different decision. But let me caution you, be careful Because it's a trickier question than it sounds, than it seems, right? Because if you change a decision you made, you got to keep in mind that while a decision is made, the consequences would be different, right? Perhaps if you change a decision that you think maybe you should have made a better decision, would those blessings that eventually came along the way, would they be removed also, right? It's a tricky question, because when we think of that question, could we make a better decision if we went back in time, we, we tend to think that all our lives would be much better, but would it? Would our lives be better if we made a different decision? I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer to that question, right? But it's something to think about. It's trickier than it first seems because our lives would certainly be different um would we would it come down to a single bad decision i i used to think of this and uh so i used to go back to a moment when i was a little kid and my dad did i don't know if i shared this story but my dad brought me and my brother to a bicycle shop i was maybe like five very young, and he said, you can pick out a bike. You can have a bike. I was like, oh, but then fear came into my head because if I ride a bike, learn to ride a bike, I might fall, and I was scared to get a bike, and here's my older brother. He's eight years older than me. He sees I'm afraid of getting a bike. He's like, what are you doing? Don't you? Dad's offering you to get a bike, and you know what? We left the bike shop without me getting a bike. My brother's like, what are you thinking? dad is going to get you a new bike, but I was scared. So I always go back to that moment. It's like, oh, how my life would be different if I got a bike, right? Well, if we did not make that decision that you thought of, can we guarantee that we wouldn't make that same decision at a later date, right? We tend to go back to one moment, if I could have made a better decision. But let's say if we change that moment, can we guarantee that we wouldn't make the same mistake at another point in time, another situation, or maybe even a greater mistake 
later on? Can we guarantee our lives will be better? If you could go back in history, if I was to tell you, stretch it out and say, okay, if you can go back to a moment in history, would there be something that you would want to change? Something that would be different, that you could change the decision that was made? I don't know if you think of anything. Most of us probably, if we thought about it, would say, we'd go back to where? The garden. Right? We'd go back to the garden. If we could change one moment in time, maybe we'd go back to the garden, to Adam and Eve, to that moment, reaching out for the fruit. We'd say, cut it out. What are you doing? Shake them, right? What are you thinking? What's in your head, right? Certainly, that moment in time changed the course of human history, right? If we're old enough in our lives, we look back at our childhood and we say, oh, life was always so much better back then, right? Maybe you said that to your kids. I've said that to my kids. Man, when I grew up, it was so much better than it is now. We look all around us. We look at the situation, the conditions of society and culture, and we look, man, can it get any worse, right? Well, technology certainly has changed things in life, but you know what? What's remained the same is the potential of the human heart. That has remained the same. That has been constant. We can trace the evils of this world back to a single moment in time, Adam and Eve, and we're going to take a look at what led up to their decision, that moment in the garden. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 2, this, this passage we were looking at this last week. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, all the way through ja, uh, chapter 3. And we're going to divide this, this passage into four sections. Okay, we're going to look at the provision. And we started looking at that last week, right? We're going to look at the decision that was made. Oh, wait, hold on. I went back. Okay. The provision, their decision, and then later we're going to look at the consequences of their decision, and then finally we'll look at the aftermath of their decision. All right, so we're looking at a big chunk of, of Scripture here. We're going to divide into four sections. The provision, the decision, the consequences, and the aftermath. So we're going to look at the, prov the provision. We started looking at that last week. We saw that God provided for man and woman. And we saw that life is a prevalent theme in God's provision. Life is emphasized in the first three chapters of Genesis. It's a theme that we see throughout the first three chapters. Besides being the creator of the universe, God is clearly the creator and giver of life. It was God who gave life into man and woman. And that he created them distinctly, and intentionally. We looked at the verses in verse 7 where it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils and he became a living being. And then in verse 18, how the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will provide a suitable helper for him. So then in verse 22 we saw, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman from the side of man, and brought her to the man. So we saw that God created with intention and purpose. 
God didn't just create man and woman and say, hey, you know what? Here you go. Go at it. Do whatever you want. He didn't do that, right? He created with purpose and he created with intention. And he gave them two specific purposes we see in this passage. One, to cultivate life, to help cultivate life, and also to help create life. We see in, in chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and all the living creatures. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, rule over all the living creatures. And then chapter 2, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And then later we saw when he created woman, brought her to the man. He said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall what? Cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God created, he gave them life, he provided for them. He created them with intention and with purpose. But he also provided generously in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. I love this about God. God is not a stingy God. He created a place of pleasure. That's what Eden's name, right? Pleasure. He created this garden, and he gave them freedom to eat any, of any tree freely. Wouldn't that be nice? He said, all these things, eat and eat freely. Ever go to someone's house and they make food, they prepare food for you, and they eat it, and they say, oh, you know, have as much, please eat up, please eat up. Have you ever like went in there and the food is so good that you want to just dig in, but you're afraid you don't want to appear as a gluttonous pig? So you're like, eat as much, you're just eating just enough more than everybody else? And they say, oh, no, I'm full. I'm okay. No, 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 no. As much as say, you know what, I have more. Oh, no, I can't. I can't. I, I'm stuffed. You really want to, but you don't want to appear as you're overindulging too much. Any of you have that problem? I think it's just the men. I only hear male laughter. You go to someone's house, and they say, oh, you know what? Don't worry, if you're watching at home, we're getting the alarms too on our phones, apparently. Flashwood warning. All right, I'm going to keep going. We're going to recognize we're getting alerts. I'm not getting an alert. I'm, oh, yep, I got it too. All right. All right. Yes, I got the alarm too. Okay. On a count of three, check your alarms and turn it off. Say, recognize you got it. Okay, you got it? So you go to someone's house and they say, oh, you know, my home is yours. Have, you know, make yourself at home. Have whatever you want. How many of you actually take them up on that offer? Some people, they, they do freely. They go, oh, okay, great. They go into the kitchen, open that fridge, and look at what's inside. Grab whatever they want. And then the homeowner at the time, they're not really saying, eat whatever you want. But I was like, all right, cat's out of the bag, you know. So they're just making themselves a sandwich and all that kind of stuff. But God, he says, I'm making all this that's good for food 
eat freely. Have at it. Indulge in the joys and pleasures I created for you. God even provided ultimate companionship for them in each other. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Let me make sure I'm, I'm up. No. Okay, I think this is it. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. All this provision came with just a single restriction with clear consequences. God was not ambiguous about the restrictions he gave them. He was not unclear of what the consequences was going to be, right? He says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. He was not ambiguous about which tree. He didn't say, okay, Adam and Eve, there's going to be one tree. I'm going to keep it a mystery. He didn't. He said, this tree, you cannot eat. Because if you do, in that day, you will surely die. A lot of people make theological determinations and based on certain assumptions. And they may certainly look at this passage, and as I mentioned last week, some people may look at it and say, did God set Adam and Eve up for failure? And I mentioned last week, I don't think so. Why do I not think so? He provided all they needed to make the right decision. He gave them different options to enjoy. He didn't just say, okay, 50-50 shot. This is the only thing you can enjoy. And this is the only thing you can't do. He gave them so many options to enjoy. Right? And if we simply go off of Scripture, what Scripture is telling us, I believe, and this is my opinion, God set them up for success. Because besides having many options to enjoy, there's one particular option that stands out. In the center of the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst or in the middle of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What do we know about this tree of life in this passage? Three things. The tree of life. One, the tree of life was located in the middle of the garden. In other words, it was not hard to find, right? God said directly, it's in the middle of the garden. The second thing, God did not restrict the man from eating the tree of life. Right? He said, all these trees you can enjoy, eat freely, except for one, the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God did not restrict the man from eating the tree of life. And the third thing, the tree would cause them to live forever. How do I say, why do I say that? We see that in chapter 3, verse 22, when God eventually banishes them from the garden. Why? Lest they reach out of the tree of life and live forever. So the consequence of that is, is made known. We'll get to that at another message. 
So there's two specific trees that are named in the garden. One tree represents life, and one tree represents death. Two simple choices, life or death, obedience or rebellion. Only one tree was restricted. So let's look at their decision. What did they decide to do? Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. We'll stop there. We'll look at the consequences of this decision next week. But what influenced their decision? Here we're introduced to a new character, the serpent. Who is this serpent? Right? A talking snake? Right? Is this Satan? Right? We don't have this. This serpent is not named, right? It's not given a name in this passage, right? And so this leads to speculation. A lot of people really look at this passage, well, is it real? Maybe it's just a symbolic, a metaphorical story, right? Can we take it literally? After all, right, we're talking like Narnia stuff, right? Is, is, was there really a talking snake? Well, what we look at this description, the serpent is described as more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this Hebrew word for what's described, what is translated as crafty, right? This word can be translated as subtle, Shrewd, crafty, sly, or sensible, or cunning, right? This term is only used in this moment in Genesis, and it's mostly used in Proverbs and two times in Job. But in the times of Proverbs, it's used to describe a commendable quality of a person. We see in Proverbs 14.8, the wisdom of the sensible, right? That's the word that we see here is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. So this term is used to use, be used in comparison to someone who's foolish, okay? Proverbs 14, 15, the naive believes everything, but the sensible, right, that's this word, sensible man considers his steps. So again, this word seems to describe an admirable quality, right? Proverbs 27, 12, a prudent man, again, the same word, sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. So in these other instances where this word is used, especially in Proverbs, it's used to describe a quality I think we would all want to have, right? We don't want to be foolish. We want to be wise. We want to be sensible. So if this term is used more positively than negatively in Scripture, why describe the serpent this way? Right? That's, that's, if, if this is Satan, right? We grew up thinking that you know, this is Satan in the garden, right? So if it's truly Satan, why use this word to describe 
something, the serpent, in a positive way. Well, it's also interesting as we kind of think about who this serpent is. If you read outside of Genesis, the identity of the serpent seems to point to Satan, or at least influenced by Satan. Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians 11, he affirms that the serpent deceived Eve. Okay? But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by what? His craftiness. Okay, so Paul acknowledges the serpent deceived Eve by craftiness. Later on in that same chapter, in verse 14, he says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we may think this portrayal certainly seems to, to be accurate to the serpent in the garden. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 12, John gives these visions of the end times, and he gives these visions of Satan as a dragon, the serpent of old. In chapter 12, verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And there was war, in verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So it seems in other parts of Scripture, it seems to indicate, to describe the serpent seems to be alluding to Satan, or Satan seems to be alluding to the serpent in the garden. Later on in Revelation 20, verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So it's kind of interesting, this other mentioning of Satan as a serpent, a dragon of old. Maybe just as convincing as the character of the serpent appears to match the character of the devil as we know it. John 8, 44 Jesus talking to the, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wherever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus describing the devil as the father of lies. 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So there's this character portrayal of the devil. He is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. He's been a murderer from the beginning. So you're taking this character, this representation of the devil and Satan as we know it from other passages, right? So what do we make of the serpent, right? Was the serpent a talking creature who was just wiser and smarter than all the other living creatures and just happened to be able to talk? Or was this Satan representing Satan or an embodiment of Satan or whatever? We're not given a clear indication of this, are we? My opinion seems to be that Satan is involved in there somewhere, right? Whether it's an appearance of the serpent or whatever it is, we'll get to the consequences in a moment. But here's what I was thinking about. If God wanted the serpent to be identified specifically as Satan, I think he could have easily have done it, right? If we wanted to understand the serpent as just Satan clearly, right, no doubt about it, I think he would have. Because we see examples in Job where Satan is clearly identified, right? He's standing before God and he's accusing, hey, what about Job, 
right? If you inflict pain and suffering on Job, then certainly he's going to curse you, right? We, we saw that. I think perhaps the intention behind the serpent's lack of identity, and this is my speculation, is to not take accountability away from the man and woman. Because we'll see that the serpent is not the key to their fall. Perhaps it's so that we don't take away accountability from the man and woman. Because if you think about it, we're very, us ourselves, we're very quick and easy to blame, right? Oh, Satan, he made me do it. I could just feel the devil just whispering in my ears. It was Satan. I need to go to church. I need someone to pray for me, right? We're very easy to blame the devil for the decisions we make. And I think we would be very easy to blame Satan for what Adam and Eve, the decisions they made. But look at the scenario. The serpent, he converses with the woman. What do we gather from the serpent's words? Look what he says. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, right? Verse 1. And in verse 4 and 5, you surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice what the serpent does in this conversation with the woman. First thing, question God's word. Indeed, did God say this thing? The second thing, question God's intentions. Third thing about these comments from the serpent, question God's character. Well, God knows. He knows that if you eat of it, you will be like him. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Fourth thing, all leading to distort God's truth with deception. Right? These comments, these questions, the comments that the serpent does, Causes, question God's word, question God's intentions, question God's character, all leading to distort God's truth with deception. Well, the answer to the serpent's question, right, ought to have been no. That is not what God said. God said you could eat freely from any tree except one. That's what Eve should have said, right? Her response to the serpent should have been, no, that is not what God has said. However, this is not what the woman said. We'll get to her response in a moment. But the serpent only needed to ask one question. And then the second time the serpent speaks and he comments on the woman's response. You surely shall not die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And it's interesting, the serpent seems to represent that he has some kind of insight into God, right? Right? It seems like the serpent has some kind of knowledge of God where he says, no, 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 wait. No, 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 that's not true because God knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. Your eyes will be opened, right? You will be like God. So the serpent asks very much a trick question and distorts the truth that God declared to Adam. Because remember when God made Adam, he said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Well, you think about it. Did Adam and Eve immediately die after eating the fruit? 
Well, in a way, no, right? So was the serpent being truthful? Not entirely. The serpent claims that if you eat of the fruit, God knows that your eyes will be opened and they will be like God, knowing good and evil. Was that true? Well, in a way, yes, right? So what's the problem? Well, can you envision a similar dialogue between, let's say, you and a sibling? A dialogue between siblings that sounds very familiar to this conversation, particularly to an older and younger sibling, right? Have you ever had this conversation if you're an older and younger sibling? Well, did mom and dad actually say we can't touch this? We're not really going to die, are we? They only said they would kill us, but are they really going to kill us? Right? Maybe you've had that same conversation with peers. Well... Did the Bible really say you can't do this? I mean, I'm looking at it. That word doesn't appear in the Bible. Maybe you've had that same conversation in your mind, right? You've had these same thoughts in your mind. The same dialogue that the serpent has with the woman, you probably had the same conversation with yourself. Well, what did God really say? Did he really say I can't do it? Is God holding out on me? Does God really like not want me to succeed? Is that why? See, the damaging deception leads the woman to question God's word and his good intentions for the man and woman. Again, was the serpent entirely wrong? See, the most believable and damaging deceptions distorts truth, bends truth, takes bits of truth and falsely represents it as truth so that you may believe. All right, you look at all the deceptions that we fall for in this world. That's what it is. Look at the woman's response to the question, right? He says, indeed, did God say you shall not eat from the tree? Look what the woman says. From the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. So far, so good. All right, Eve's got, got that part right. But from the tree which is in the middle of the garden, uh uh-oh, all right, here's where it goes wrong. God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Here's where the woman goes wrong. Eve goes wrong. First, the woman has the trees mixed up. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the knowledge of good and evil may have been in close proximity to the tree of life, But the tree of life is specifically identified in the middle of the garden. So it seems that as though maybe Eve is mixed up. Perhaps Adam, her husband, did not clearly communicate God's command to his wife. Now I know, that sounds a little crazy. That just sounds absurd. Who has ever heard of a husband failing to communicate with his wife? That may be the most absurd part of this story. That's what probably makes us a myth. There's no way a husband can fail to communicate vital parts of information to his wife. That never happens, right? See, you're all laughing at how absurd that is. Especially the women. They're really laughing really hard. Like, yeah, that never happens to my husband. Don't worry, guys. We can blame Adam. 
This was the curse. It's because of Adam, now we can't communicate properly with our wives. Whatever the reason, Eve does not give the right answer. However, apparently, it only took one question and one distorted comment to persuade Eve. Nothing else needed to be said for the serpent. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate it and gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. The appeal of the fruit took it from there. The serpent, yeah, asked some questions, made a comment or two, but it made the woman think. And then the appeal of the fruit took it from there. The appeal was threefold. What does it say? She saw that it was good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. Remember, God, when he created all the trees, he said he created that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. All the trees looked pleasing and good for food. Yet, she looks at this tree it looked edible, right? Appealed to her fresh. Oh, that looks good. So tasty. It looks like it's good food. It was a delight to the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. It appealed to self-pride, right? Appealed to the flesh. Appealed to the eyes. And appealed to self-pride. I can be like God. This, this phrase, to make one wise, means to wisely understand, to look at, upon, or have insight, to act wisely. Look what the serpent said. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman was convinced that she would receive God-like insight and understanding. As if God was holding something out from them. That I could get something that God has not given me. And I can see and understand and be like God. Curiosity is very powerful, isn't it? How many times has curiosity gotten us into trouble? Curiosity is a great thing. But curiosity seems to have a direct pipeline to self-pride right? Curiosity has a direct effect and line to selfish pride. So we have these questions, these conversations where we question God's word based on curiosity. Did God really say I couldn't do this? We question God's intentions because of our curiosity. Well, does God really want the best for me? Does he really know what he's talking about? question God's character and curiosity often distorts God's truth with deception see our adversary's strategy hasn't changed over the course of human history do any of these thoughts sound familiar did God actually say this in the Bible how many times do we hear that today did he specifically address this in the Bible did he really 
forbid this in the Bible? God doesn't want you to be happy. How many of you have said that to yourself? God doesn't really care what you do. You think God really cares what you do? Look around the world. Look all that's going on. Do you think he really bothers about what you do in the privacy of your home or in your life? Listen to the Apostle John's warning to the church. 1 John 2. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, John's warning to the church is as applicable to us today as it was 2,000 years ago approximately when he wrote to the church. And it certainly would have been a prophetic warning to Adam and Eve in the garden in the moments. This warning of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That would have been a pretty applicable warning to Adam and Eve. But the decision was made, right? She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. It's important for us to know, Eve was not alone in the garden with the serpent. The serpent was talking to both the man and the woman. But we only receive Eve's response. She reached out, took the fruit, and ate it. She was not forced. The serpent did not force her to do anything. She was a willing participant. But meanwhile, the man is silent during this abbreviated conversation here. While this is happening, the man is silent. We don't see any word from the man. There's no correction, no accountability. He didn't step in and say, Eve, hey, that's not what God said. He didn't stop in between the serpent and the woman, right? The man was as complicit and responsible as the woman. He took from her and he ate. That decision. The trouble we get ourselves into is just as simple, right? Right? The situations we find ourselves in can be just as simple. We ignore all the other options the Lord has given us. Think about it. The temptations we fall into, right? They're so appealing, so desirable. But think about it. Take a step back. Look at all the other options that God gives us to enjoy. We could take pleasure in. But yet it's the one thing that we feel that is forbidden that we get so tempted by. Instead, we choose the forbidden. And we choose to go against the Lord's desire. And we rationalize it, we justify it, we make excuses for what we do. We give in to the lust of the flesh, we give in to the lust of the eyes, we give in to the lust of pride or the pride of life. And then we wonder, after the effects of it, we say, oh, how did I get myself into this situation? Right? We look back, man, if I could have only go back and made a simple decision differently. Sometimes it's a cascade of decisions that we made. It's one after another, after another, 
after another. And then we find ourselves in a situation where like, how did I get myself into this mess? But the strategy of temptation remains the same from the time of the garden throughout human history. It's the same. It's not technology. Yeah, it's changed. It makes it harder. But our heart condition has been the same ever since. Can we practice, and I'll end with this point, can we practice contentment and trust in the Lord's provision and restriction? Ask yourself that. Can I just simply trust and be content with what God has provided me and he, what he clearly restricts me from doing? Can I just be content with that? Can I just trust that when the Lord says, don't do this, there are consequences that I am going to regret? Or do we feel the need to give in because it looks so good? It's going to feel so good. It's going to make my life so much better, so much better than what God says he's going to give me. We have to realize all the world has to offer are just false promises. They're just false promises. And we fall for it because of the look, because of the sensory experience or what we think we're going to better ourselves with. That's how we get into the situations we find ourselves in. Next week, we're going to look at the consequences. The consequences of that decision and the aftermath that we all experience and follow afterwards. But I want to challenge us to consider, if you yourselves find yourself in a similar situation, how did I get myself into this mess? It won't just be one decision or two decisions. We can't go back in time. We can't change it. But what we can start doing is practicing contentment and trust in the Lord. They'll say, God, I'm in this mess. Can you help me in dealing with the aftermath? Help me to practice contentment. Help me, Lord, to trust that, Lord, what you're saying not to do, that I can follow and you will be faithful to restore and be with me that I will trust in your provision, not the provisions that I think is going to be better. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we... We often look back, we say, man, Adam, Eve, how could you make such a decision? And Lord, we make those same decisions each and every day. We get deceived by the false promises of this world. We get deceived by our own desires, our own will. We get deceived by what we think is better. But Lord, we need to trust you. We need to practice contentment. Trust in your provision. And even trust in your restriction.
Lord, may you speak to, into our lives, and if there's things in our life that we need you to change, or we need to change the course and the decisions that we make in our life, Lord, may we trust you to lead and guide us. We give you praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Stand and let's worship together.